uh, Hosea chapter 10 this evening, as I've shared with you um, how this book of Hosea is broken up in my Bible. It's kind of broken up into different parts, and we have been in the retribution part of the book, which covers chapters 9 and 10, and it's talking about the judgment. Um, the word retribution, words that are associated with it are vengeance, revenge, payback, and so what we are in this part of the book, we are in the sentencing part, if you will, of this courtroom setting that we've kind of had here as we've been going through the book of Hosea. After this chapter, um, we will move into the redeeming part of the book. I, I've told you that the book of Hosea, the theme is redeeming love. And after this portion, after this chapter that we go through, we will see God's unceasing love for Israel. We will also see God's restoration of the nation of Israel. And I think I've shared with you often as we've been looking at this book, and this book has so much judgment in it, um, that God's judgment in, in this world, per se, is not forever. Especially when we look at the, the, the whole thing of Israel, he gave Israel chance after chance after chance. And even when he brought judgment upon Israel at certain times throughout their history, he always gave them this opportunity to repent. And it's interesting because what we see in this chapter is, again, the sentencing part of the chapter, but we will catch glimpses of him just kind of giving them another bone. It's like, here, do this. Do this for mercy. And, and so God continues to pour out his wrath um, or, or his judgment, but he always gives hope. And so what we need to understand in the book of Hosea is that it is about God's redemption. And I think oftentimes, even though it sounds harsh, uh, that the judgment is coming. God is a God who keeps his promises. And I love the fact that, that God says, blessings, there are blessings if you obey me or when you obey me, but there will be cursings when there, there's, there's disobedience. And so as God is a God of love, he is also a God of judgment. And I love what the apostle Paul, uh, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 17. It says, it says, for the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel? And even though God dealt with Israel and, and, and he, he, he brings judgment upon them, he begins with his own people. And I think he does that with us as a church. I think we are in a moment of time in history. And even though there has, been, there has been judgment on the church throughout history, I think today we're in that place where I think he's bringing judgment and the judgment begins in the house of God. I truly believe that we are in those days that Hosea has really been speaking to my heart that because Hosea has led us in this place where, where God's, warned them and warned them and warned them and he says there's a line right here and after that there's no turning back judgment will come but he always gives opportunity even in that 
portion that maybe if he's going to judge the nation, he gives opportunities for individuals to, to turn, to seek his face. And I believe that, again, as a, as a country, we're in a place where God, God will judge this country. I think he has to. We're, we're in that place, and I think we're going to see some of the things even tonight. But, but I think if he's going to judge this country, he's going to judge the church. Because judgment does begin in the house of God. And I think this is where we, as a church community, uh, we stand. And, and, and we see what happens throughout this time. So it's exciting times to say the least. But Hosea chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, uh, Israel emptied his vine. He brings forth fruit for himself. According to the multitude of his fruit, he has increased the altars according to the bounty of his land. He has embellished his sacred pillars. Their heart is divided. Now they are held guilty. He will break down their altars. He will ruin their sacred pillars. For now they say, we have no king because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what will he do for us? They have spoken words, swearing falsely in making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like hemlock in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria fear because of the calf of Beth-Avon. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. The idol also shall be carried to Assyria as a present to King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of its own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off like a twig in the, on the water. Also the high places of Avon, the, the, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. The thorns and thistles shall grow on their altar. They shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. As we, as we go back to verses 1 and 2 and just kind of look at this portion here where he says Israel empties its vine. If you remember a couple of studies ago, a couple of weeks ago, there was a reference to Israel's origin, if you will. In chapter 9, verse 10, where, where it says to us, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. And it gives us this beautiful picture of, of when God formed Israel, founded Israel, that, that, that he found this extreme delight in this nation, this small nation. And I love the fact that when he's talking to Israel, he says, I didn't pick you because you were great and mighty. I didn't pick you because of all these things. I picked you because you couldn't help yourself. <laughs> and God would be everything for them. And yet he delighted in them so much so that, that, that he gives us this picture of, 
of the nation of Israel like grapes in the desert or in the wilderness. That would be a great delight to someone who is out there going, oh my goodness, look at these grapes. They're so luscious, you know, they're so like, you know, watery and stuff. You know, there's that, that thing that it's like, man, oh man, because you would be surprised to find something like that. And so he says, this is my, my Israel. So as in chapter 9, verse 10, here, the prophecy that we have in chapter 10 here, in, 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 these, in this verse here, basically, he, he employs this botanical uh, metaphor referring to the land, referring to Israel as its early history as a vine or a vineyard. You see, the Lord planted Israel like a vine in the land of Canaan, when, when he brought them out and when he brought them into this new land, that he would bless her with fruit, i.e. prosperity, wealth, influence, opulence even, if you will. In Psalm uh, 80, verses 8 through 11, it says this, You have brought a vine out of Egypt, you have cast out the nations and planted it. You prepared room for it and caused it to, to take deep root. And it filled the land. The hills were covered with its shadow. And the mighty cedar with its bough or, or branches. She sent out her boughs or branches to the seas and her branches to the rivers. And so we get this picture of Israel, this, this vineyard of God, this, this, this thing that produced fruit that he planted, that he did all the work for. And I think it's in Isaiah, there's a certain portion where he says, what more could the, the vine dresser have done for the vineyard? He did everything for the vineyard. And the nation of Israel now empties its vine. The year is about, or, or, or the, the fact that they had emptied its vine from that time that he brought them out of Egypt to this time, it's been about 684 years since they left or since they went into the land of Canaan. From that time, it brought forth the promises of the land that they, it would be pros, prosperous. God would bless them. And it's interesting because in the 684 years, they had their ups and downs. They had their good times. They had their bad times. They, they had this ebb and flow, just like we see in our country where we have good years, we have bad years. But yet for the most part, even through the bad years, God continued to give Israel bounty. He continued to give them what they needed. They continued to, to, to expand and to grow. From, from, from about the time that God brought them into the land, the promised land, it was about 1405 B.C. To this time that the prophet is prophesying Hosea's time, we, they have no king. They have no king as it tells us in verse 3. So, so now it's about 721 B.C. And so for 
for about 684 years, there's been all this stuff that's been going on in Israel. And as the nation prospered in those times, with their ups and downs, the more they prospered, the more they attributed their success to false gods rather than to the Lord. And at the same time, the people attempted to maintain some kind of semblance, some kind of appearance or, or devo of devotion to the God of Israel. And, and, and so you can picture that as they're growing, as they're prospering, as they're bringing in more and more of the fruit of the prosperity, they, they had God, but they had now added to God these false idols. The bigger they got, the more altars increased. Why? Because they had abundance. And I think it's fascinating that even in our culture with us, that the more we get, the more we, we bring up altars with us. We don't want to. We don't think we are. But when, when push comes to shove and everything gets kind of taken away, we're going, well, don't take my altar. Don't take that. and Don't take that. It's like... But you have this. It's like, I know, but I kind of got used to all this other stuff. And this is what's happening with the nation of Israel. They increased in altars, it says. Because of the bounty of the land. They embellished their sacred places. Because they continued to grow. The altars mentioned here probably refer to this insincere, phony, hypocritical form of worship that we have seen throughout the book of Hosea. Again, he's speaking of the northern kingdom, Israel, Ephraim, as they are also called. They, they had these sacred pillars, these stones, if you will, that alluded to or lured them into idolatry. All because they had more and more. The abundance was abundant. <laughs> the prosperity was prosperous. And I think there's a danger in that because oftentimes we, we look at prosperity and we're going, oh, the more we make, the more we get. And, and it seems like people stop being satisfied with, with just the simpleness of what God intended for us. Now, understand, God is not against the, the, the wealth and the prosperity that He gave to the nation of Israel because He wanted to bless them, and He would tell them, and He told them through Deuteronomy 28, if you obey, I will prosper you. But that prosperity got in their way, and it kind of blinded them. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you in your life. I'm sure you've had your ups and downs. That, that when you were poor, when you had nothing, it's like you were kind of happy in some ways because you had nothing else. And all you, you, whatever you had, you were satisfied with. And the older you got and the more stuff you accumulated, the more stuff you just wanted to grab onto because it's like, well, I bought it. It's mine. And it's one of those things that, 
that in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, it talks about that our possessions, that we should honor the Lord with our possessions. But what starts happening with possessions, and we see here, it, it seems like our possessions begin to possess us. Because we have so much. <laughs> and to give it all away, it reminds me of the rich young ruler, that, that again, he had so much, and he wanted to follow Jesus, and he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? And Jesus talks him through this whole thing. He says, well, I've done all that. I'm just like you. And then Jesus hits him with this one. Well, give it all away to the poor and follow me. <laughs> and he was saddened because his possessions possessed him. And he could not just give it away. He thought he was doing good. He thought he was being prosperous. He had everything he needed. And yet when Jesus said, well, you don't need any of that if you really want salvation. All you need is me. And sometimes we're going, yeah, I need Jesus, but what else can I have with that? What can I add to that? Or what can I keep with that? And Jesus, again, as we see with the nation of Israel, he goes, you, you embellished, you abounded, you had all these things. And they got in your way. He says their heart is divided in verse 2. And that word divided here in the Hebrew means slippery or smooth. And it can oftentimes be used in terms of deceit, deceitful, or unreliable speech. And it was interesting because I'm looking at this word in the Hebrew and I'm looking at these words that are associated with it and I just thought, wow, divided, it's separated, the heart is separated, it's divided. And, and with these words that are associated in the Hebrew with slippery and smooth, I thought, man, isn't that interesting that a smooth talker is oftentimes decept deceitful. And most of the time, those smooth talkers that are deceitful are ready to and willing to divide and separate just with their words. Israel's unfaithfulness established her guilt because they were divided, because, because of all this stuff that has happened, this deceitfulness that has gone on in their hearts. It says now they are held guilty. And it was their unfaithfulness that convicted them of their guilt. And it necessitated, it brought about her punishment. It had to. She, she, she's being tried right here. They are being tried here. And everything has come, come out. Everything has been laid out on the table. And she is, and they are found guilty. And now it was time for judgment. And it seems like it had come or it was right around the corner. But to me, it seems like they were now at the point where they could not turn back. Oh, it didn't mean that they would be there forever because there was still hope in the future, especially for individuals. But it says in verse 2, after he says their heart is divided, now they, will, they, now they are held guilty. 
He will break down their altar. He will ruin their sacred pillars. The prophet is speaking about the Lord in that He, the Lord, would come against them. Again, God is, was not against their prosperity, their influence, their, their, or their affluence, their, their wealth, or even their opulence. He wasn't against that in any way. But the fact of the matter was that they were giving the credit to these false gods. God had blessed their vineyards and they're bringing in a harvest and they're bringing it to Baal. And they're giving it to, bringing it to the altars. And I'm sure God put up with it for a long time. And I'm sure it saddened his heart knowing I'm the one that gave you the rain. I'm the one that gave you the fruit. I'm the one that brought forth the harvest and you give it to another. And it kind of brings us back to the beginning of Hosea when Hosea marries the prostitute and she eventually leaves and she's with another man and it's Hosea that's bringing all that she needs to this man going, give this to my wife. I know she's living with you. I know that she's prostituting herself, but I am still taking care of her. And yet she turns around and she gives it to the Baals. She gives it to the other gods. And so that picture that we had in the beginning is coming to fruition once again as God is saying, here, you gave your, your fruit that I provided for you to other gods. And we read back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, I think it was a more chapter 2, where, where he says, enough. Now I will expose your nakedness to his wife. And what they should have done on their own, <laughs> God will now do through his judgment. In that, they should have destroyed these pillars and torn them down. God says He will do that for them. And isn't that interesting? If we, if we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us. If we have something and God says, I need you to take that out of your life, because it's no good for you, and you're going, well, I'll get to it, Lord. Then he finally does it, and it hurts a lot more than if we would have just given it up. And I think oftentimes that comes with the price because we, we fail to humble ourselves, and he says, just give it up to me, and I will help you through it. And, 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 and we end up going like, well, I want to hold on to it. And he says, and I will break it. I will take it out of your hand. What they should have done, they did not do, so God would do it for them. And so he would destroy the sights of their insincere, phony, and hypocritical and false worship places. The more they got, the more they built, and he finally says, here, let me take care of that for you. Let me take those, those, those things that, that cause you to sin, let me take that out of your life. And so in verse 3, they say, For now they say we have no king, because we did not fear the Lord. And as for a king, what would he do for us? So, so it seems to indicate to us here that the northern kingdom was just about over. 
They are on their last leg. After King Jeroboam II, there would be six other kings, and they're probably on their third or fourth king, just about done here. It's quite possible that they are now done, but be that as it may, the writing is on the wall for them. They will have no king. If, if they don't have it right now, they will have no king pretty soon. You see, as a result of their approaching invasion that would be coming in from the north, They, they had shattered everything because of their politics, because of them wanting to smooth, if you will, with the Assyrians, they were now going to be shattered. And their king, who was making these deals with these foreigners, these invaders, he would be removed eventually. And in the aftermath of this calamity, the people would end up recognizing their own unfaithfulness. In other words, their failure to, to revere, to honor the Lord. And because of that, judgment is coming. And it's interesting because they catch it. They understand it. Because they say, we have no king. Well, you have no king because he's been making all these deals and he is about to be taken out of the way. And they understood and they caught it and they said, because we did not fear the Lord. But even if they did, they're at a point that, that they're saying, as for a king, what would he do for us now? He had no power. He had no, no authority anymore to save them because they're, they're done. It seems like their situation would become so hopeless because their king, even if he was there, had no remedy for them. It, 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 again, when, when I think about these things, I think of, like, you know, why do we end up trusting in man when God is everything we need? And I'm not just talking politics. <laughs> Why do we trust and put our trust in people when they don't have the remedy? And I think oftentimes, I, I, I know as husband and wife, we're to lean on each other. And we, we have one another, but even my wife cannot fulfill my every need. I, I, I can't expect her to be my God. Jesus is my God. I, I, I've shared this with people that my wife is only part of my life. She is not my life. Jesus is my life. He is my everything. Because one day she dies or I die. She is only part of my life. And yet we put our stock on, on, on somebody and we put all our stock in. And I'm not saying we can't trust and be, be there for one another. But what I'm saying is that, that, that they, have not, they have no remedy for us. It is God that we fear. It is God that we revere. It is God who sits on the throne. It is God who we honor with everything that we have. Oh, he blesses us with people in our lives. And we are blessed by that. But they are not our saviors. And we should never put them in that position because they will fail us. 
He talks about in verse 4, they have spoken words, swearing falsely by making a covenant. Thus judgment springs up like a hemlock, like hemlock in the furrow of the fields. The people's lack of respect for the Lord was illustrated in their lack of respect and their lack of regard for legal agreements that they were making with one another. Their, their attitude towards their, their, their fellow citizens, their fellow Israelites, if you will, it, it simply reflected the lack of respect and the lack of loyalty that they had for their God. And, and it's interesting because when we take our eyes off of God and put them on man, we end up treating them different. We end up thinking that they can fulfill, but they cannot. And when we don't honor God, we don't honor people as well. And when we take our eyes off of God, then we treat people like, like trash instead of honoring God and honoring the king, honoring God and honoring the people. These people, they took their eyes off of God, and so now every time they spoke and they were speaking, they were speaking falsely and swearing falsely. They were making these covenants that meant nothing, all because they had a lack of respect for one another. And it was again made evident in how they treated one another and how they were taking one another to court on a regular basis. There's an interesting agricultural kind of image that he gives us here in verse 4. Uh, the judgment springs up like hemlock or, or a poisonous plant or weed here. The NIV puts it like this. They make many promises, take false oaths, and make agreements, therefore lawsuits spring up like poisonous weeds in a plowed field. The New Living Translation puts verse 4 like this, they spout empty words and make covenants that they don't intend to keep. So injustice springs up among them like poisonous weeds in a farmer's field. In other words, the people... They couldn't even trust one another anymore. They were making promises, but they knew that they weren't going to keep them. And, and if they couldn't trust the king and the decisions he was making, well, much less were they going to trust the people. <laughs> so everything is falling apart, it seems like. They were suing one another to see what they could get from one another, even though their words carried no weight at all either. The, the multiplying of laws and the multiplying of lawsuits is one evidence, is one evidence of the integrity and credibility of a vanishing society. And I can't help but when I'm studying stuff like this and thinking of stuff like this and reading stuff like this, it is like, doesn't look too different today. It doesn't, it doesn't, 
it's almost everything repeats itself, guys. And, and, and when a society is beginning to falter and decay, then, then people go after one another. And, 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 and what I was looking at this as I'm thinking of this, it's like, if it's happened in the past, it's going to continue to happen until Jesus comes back. And, and we often think, and we put stock in people, and we put stock in, 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 in politicians, and it's like, it's, it's going, something's going to happen. This, this is not going to continue forever. And so what we see that was happening to the nation of Israel in 720 B.C. is happening, and, and it has happened throughout societies. And societies have come and they've gone. And yet, the Lord has lasted forever. <laughs> the inhabitants of Samaria, it says in verse 5, they fear. Because of the calf of Beth-Avon. For its people mourn for it, and its priests shriek for it, because its glory has departed from it. Some details of the approaching judgment and exile are described from verses 5 through through 8 in this portion here which once again alludes to the fact that the northern kingdom was on its way out. It was decaying. It was falling apart. It was just about over and done. Verse 5 in the Amplified goes like this. The inhabitants of Samaria shall be in terror for for the calf idol of Beth-Avon the house of idolatry, contemptuously meaning Bethel, for its people shall mourn over it, and its idolatrous priests who rejoice over it shall tremble for the glory of their calf, God, because it has departed from it. What a a sad, sad commentary here. This calf idol was located in Beth-Avon, which literally meant Bethel. It was being carried away by, by the army that was coming in that would be victorious over the northern kingdom. And, and it caused such great consternation, dismay, concern among the worshipers which is so, so sad. The people mourned because their calf was being taken away. And and when I say calf, it was probably calves. The priest, it says, are shrieking, howling, because their calf is being taken away. And the word for priest here in in this phrase here is is a rare term, it says, in this verse, and it's translated idolatrous priests. And and it it, it was referring to priests of Baal, Baal, that, that, again, they were pretending that they were worshiping God, but they were also worshiping Baal. 
And so we need to understand that the priests from the northern kingdom, they were never part of God's priests because they never were from the family of Aaron. They were not from the lineage of the priesthood. When the, the, the nations divided, they made their own priests. It's almost like they sold priesthoods, if you will. And so they were never true priests in any sense of the word. Not, not only is it sad that the people and the priests are mourning and shrieking that the Assyrian army is carrying away their, carrying off their idol, but what's even more sad is that they are worshiping something that can be taken. They are worshiping something that can be stolen. <laughs> How sad is that? When I was in South Asia last year, where they have millions of gods, where they have so many different types of idols, I was talking to a pastor who, who talks to the, the Hindus there, and, and, and he would not poke fun at them, but he would kind of needle them a little bit and say, why does your God, why do you have to protect your God? Why do you have to put, put a, 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 a fence around it with a lock and a shrine over it so nobody comes and takes your God? That's kind of sad, isn't it? And, and I'm almost like laughing going, that's kind of sarcastic, but that's what's happening here. They're worshiping something, but their, their God, their idol can be stolen. What kind of God is that? <laughs> they have to protect their God from this invading army and they couldn't protect their God so their God is being taken away and it's like that is said when we put our eyes on things that can be taken away from us and we put so much stock in it thinking that it will help us that it will deliver us that it will do something for us and yet somebody breaks in and takes it and you're going where's my God? That, that's what I thought was, was so sad in this verse here that the people are mourning and the, the, the priests are shrieking because the glory <laughs> has departed from it. Their calves have been taken. <coughs> I love the fact that we have a God who cannot be moved. Nobody can steal God. Nobody can move Him. We were, we were praying earlier, and somebody was praying about how our God cannot be moved. That's pretty comforting, I think, for us, shouldn't it? That, that the God that you claim to serve cannot be, cannot, it's like He's not freaking out right now with COVID. I could guarantee you that. He is not freaking out because it's like, oh my gosh, everybody shut everything down. What am I going to do? He's not freaking out. Our God cannot be moved. He cannot be taken. He cannot be stolen. And yet, that is the same God that these guys worshipped. And yet, they had taken their eye off of God and put it on these calves that could do nothing for them. And so they received shame in verse 6. Ephraim shall receive shame and Israel shall be ashamed of its own counsel. I think the shamefulness and, the, the, and being dismayed had to do with their unwise political 
policies that be, be, because they were kind of courting the Assyrian army or, or government for favor, and yet it, it would be the Assyrians that would come and destroy them. And they had no one else to blame but themselves. But I would also say that the shame and the, the dismay also had to do with the fact that all their prosperity, wealth, affluence, and even opulence was worth nothing now to them. All that they had gathered from their vines meant nothing because they had attributed it to something that could not sustain them, and that is their calves, their idols. In verse 7 it says, As for Syria, her king is cut off like a twig on the water. Israel's king as well as their calf idol would be cut off, removed, destroyed. And, and, and he gives us this picture of the king being broken like a twig and just kind of going down in the river and now it would float away. A, a twig that, that is on, on a river that's moving, there's, there's nothing you could do for it anymore. It's gone. In other words, the nation, because their king was now swept away, they themselves would also be swept away by the current and, and be ruined eventually. And then in verse 8, it says, And the high places of Avon, <clears throat> the sin of Israel shall be destroyed, and the, thistle, the thorns and the thistles shall grow on their altar. These high places were the sites of the, their idolatrous worship. And they would be ruined and destroyed as well. And there would be overgrowth of thorns and thistles. And this reference to the destruction of the high places is somewhat ironic in that when God gave them the, the promised land, He told them about the high places in there that other people, the Canaanites, or, or the people before them that they had set up and that's where they would worship. And he had told them, when you enter in, destroy all the high places. I can't tell you how many times he would tell them, destroy the high places. And then somebody else would come into power and say, hey, destroy those high places. And he told them time and time and time and time and time again. And they never destroyed those high places. They continued to worship at these high places. And because of their failure to carry out what the Lord charged them to do, the Lord chose this foreign army to accomplish His purpose. And they would be the one that destroyed those high places. And the people cried out that the mountains should fall on us and the hills or cover us and the mountains should fall on us. In their despair, the people begged that the mountains will now fall on them. And it's similar a similar plea that we hear in the book of Revelation chapter 6 when the great terror of the Lord comes upon the, the world that the, the unbeliever in the tribulation will be crying out the same thing that the mountains should cover us and the, uh, and the hills should fall on us. In verse 9 to the end of the chapter says, Now, O Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah 
But there they stood, the battle in Gibeah against the children of iniquity, and did not overtake them. When it, was, when it is my desire, I will chasten them. People shall be gathered against them. When I bind them for their two transgressions, Ephraim is a trained heifer that loves the threshing grain. But, the, but I harnessed her, her fair neck, and I will make Ephraim pull a plow. Judah shall plow. Jacob shall, be, shall break its clods. Verse 12, sow for yourself righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. <clears throat> you have plowed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. You have eaten the fruit of lies because you trusted in your own way. In the multitude of your mighty men, therefore tumult shall arise among your people, and, I, and all your fortresses shall be plundered. As shall men... Uh, plundered Beth Abel in the day of battle. A mother dashed in pieces upon her children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly, or shall be cut off utterly. <clears throat> Gibeah, again, we mentioned it a couple weeks ago in, in chapter 9. It recalls that, that horrible sin that, that it was described, and I read a little bit about it about uh, in Judges 19, where, where this lady gets, gets gang raped, rape basically, and then he finally cuts her up and sends her off to different parts of Israel. Well, the next chapter, in chapter 20 of Judges, there is a battle in, in Gibeah, and it is against... The children, he calls them here, of iniquity, but it is against the children of Benjamin who had done this horrible thing. They committed this, this atrocious iniquity, and still, all these years later, Israel still is in iniquity. And, and, and as we shared last week, or a couple weeks ago, their sin was just as bad as that sin. Here in Hosea's day, it seemed that God wanted this willful, blind Israel to see their sin and repent. And this is where we kind of see the, the, the mercy of God once again reminding them to turn. <clears throat> and then he says in verse 10, When it is my desire, I will chasten my people. Chasten them. People shall be gathered against them. Then I will bind them for their two transgressions. And so... It is the Lord's timing that he would bring about the judgment because he's not afraid to bring about judgment. And he gives us a picture of this farm animal, this heifer, this cow, if you will, that, that will be controlled and guided. And it's talking about Israel and it's talking about Jacob, which is Israel, Ephraim. And even if they kick against what's going on, he will make them do something that they don't want to do because he gives us this image of Ephraim being this trained heifer that didn't mind doing the work going around because she could eat 
and, and, and work at the same time. But when you're plowing, you don't get to do that. And so he says, you had it made because I took care of you. But now I'm going to put this yoke and now you're going to go out there and you're going to work hard. And you could, you could almost see that this heifer is going, I wasn't made for that. I was made to, 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 to do this, to go around and around circle and eat when I wanted. But now they would be out there doing laborious work. And again, it just kind of shows and it alludes to the judgment that would be coming upon the northern kingdom. And he also adds, Judah will plow. In other words, she will eventually get there as well. In verse 12, it says, Sow for yourself righteousness and reap mercy. Break up the fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. And so once again, what we see here is that God is reminding them to seek him, to turn. That God would be willing to forgive them. Oh, as a nation, they would not but as individuals, he's reminding them to turn. <clears throat> so for yourself, righteousness, that you may reap mercy. And I think that we, as a people, never get away from the sowing and the reaping. Because if we sow of the flesh, we will of the flesh reap corruption. But when we sow the Spirit, we will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And so that sowing and reaping always happens. And he's giving them this, this understanding that now it's time to break up this fallow ground. And the fallow ground is, is, is a piece of land that has not been tilled in over a year. It has become hard. And it's really hard to sow seed on, on, on ground that has not been tilled up. This fallow ground, it, it, it's better just to, to throw your seed away because it's going to hit some hard ground. And yet, I think the challenge for them was that he is telling them it's time to be broken so that now it would be the time to seek the Lord so that the rain can come in and begin to do a work in you. And again, I think for us that, that, that when our hearts begin or start to, to be hardened, that we have to allow the Lord to till up that ugly, hard ground because I don't know about you, man, but there's times in seasons in our lives that we allow our hearts to become like this fallow ground. And it's hard for anything to penetrate. And I think sometimes we like it that way. And yet... There's no time for growth because nothing can grow. Nothing can to go in there because it's hard. And it's almost like this tiller has to come in. And you can almost picture this tiller just dragging on top of it because it's so hard. And he has to do several pass, passes until he starts breaking it up a little bit. And then it can dig down deep. I have a neighbor who does that to his property all the time just for weed control. But it just reminds me as he's, as he's going, and he makes several passes after about a year, you know, he does it again. And that, man, it just seems so soft. But you go to my property, it's nice and hard. <laughs> it's like clink. And so, so there has to be a time where we have to allow the Lord to break those things up in our hearts so that we can serve him and, and follow after him. I want to finish off right now by reading uh, verses 13 through 4, uh, through 15 in the New Living Translation. 
It says, you have cultivated wickedness and harvested a thriving crop of sin. You have eaten the fruit of lies, trusted in your military might, believing that great armies could, could make your nation safe. Verse 14, now the terrors of war will rise among your people. All your fortifications will fall. Just as when Shalem destroyed Beth Ebal, even mothers and children were dashed to, uh, to death there. You will, you will share that faith, Bethel, because of your great wickedness. When the day of judgment dawns, the king of Israel will completely will be completely destroyed and in essence when we sow to the flesh we see the consequences here for the nation of Israel <clears throat> they trusted in their own might instead of God they trusted in others instead of God and when we do those things then God will allow us to trust in other things but we will always always never fail come up empty guys and, and, and he will allow judgment even to come into our lives to get our attention. Not because he hates you, because he wants you to turn. Because he wants that fallow ground to be broken up so that he can penetrate with his seed so that you can grow and you can mature. Amen? Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord God, for speaking to us, Lord. <clears throat> Again, Lord God, as we've been going through the book of Hosea, Lord, you don't, you don't cut any corners, Lord. Lord, you, you say what you mean, and you mean what you say. And Lord, we see, Lord, because history tells us, Lord, of what happened to the northern kingdom. And yet, Lord God, even in the midst of the judgment, Lord, you wanted them to turn. You wanted them to sow righteousness that they might reap mercy. Yeah, Lord, you're so good. I pray that even with us, Lord, wherever we're at right now, if, if there's even an inkling of hardness in our heart, I pray for conviction to fall upon us right now. I pray that we would come to a place, Lord, of allowing you to penetrate our heart and break it up, Lord, <clears throat> so that it can be, be moldable once again, so that you can plant your seed, Lord, so that there would be fruit, more fruit, and then much fruit, Lord. And so we love you, Lord. We thank you for loving us that way. We honor you, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we've failed you, Lord. But Father, help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, guys.